Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Inch by inch, row by row, gonna make this start grow. Come on around back, Arizona. It's Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, the outdoor living hour. It's Rosie on the house, your Saturday morning tradition for 35 years. And it's the third Saturday of the month already into this year. And we've had beautiful rains and fork overcast and almost kind of forgot I lived in Arizona there last week. Didn't hardly get to see the sun at all, but it's been out the last few days. It's beautiful. And we've got Jay Harper in studio with us talking about roses. If you're following along in your homeowner handbook, You know, that is our topic today in the 8 o'clock hour. It always comes up this time of year, and it's always one of the hardest things to do as a rose caretaker. Yeah, pruning it back. Hack it all down. Yeah, Yeah, you know, I um, at home have quite a few roses in the front yard, and just this last week or so people are out walking and commenting on how beautiful they are. And I said, yeah, well— don't come by for a few more weeks because I'm getting ready to cut them back. And it is, it's going to be one of those. You got to kind of just close your eyes and do it because they're, they're gorgeous. So yeah, why? you got to do it. Why? Well, because they bloom on new growth. If you let this, all this new growth that's bloomed and it's been blooming, they're pretty big. They're going to still put on some new growth and have some blooms, but you end up with this great big overgrown plant that has less new growth or less places for new growth to emerge from. So consequently, ultimately, you will have less blooms. So if you want to maximize your blooms, you want to maximize how much new growth um, that you have that plant putting on. And trimming it back promotes the new growth. Stimulates all that new opportunistic new growth that will come on this spring and then I'll end up in all these new buds and ends that are going to bloom um, come late spring and into the summer and, and into next fall. And then besides that, in most cases and in my case, that they, they're, they've gotten almost too big for the space. So they need to be cut back from a size standpoint as well. And what type of rose variety are we commonly seeing out here? Well, what everybody kind of wants – is that rose that you buy in the flower shop with you know one big beautiful bud and then a bloom on a big long stem like you see in an arrangement of a dozen roses or so those are typically called hybrid tea roses and they produce one bud on the end of a long terminal branch and they get you know like I said one bud and that and because it's only one bud the flower tends to be quite large. Those aren't always the best roses for people, and it depends on what you're trying to do with roses. If you just want color in your landscape, and we've seen, oh, it's been at least 10 years, probably a little longer, you know how time is, kind of an advent of roses now, particularly the variety iceberg, the white roses you see in a lot of landscapes now. Are, are a shrub or a floribunda-type, shrub-type rose. They have buds and blooms on, or multiple buds on the end of stems or branches. And so you end up with a lot more color. You don't have a nice long stem to cut and take in the house, but you have maybe a stem that has 
four or five buds or blooms on it. So you can still cut them and take them in the house and enjoy them. I don't know how many people actually really do that. <laughs> but they're much easier to care for. They're not as uh, – it's not as important how you trim them back because you're not worried about, you know, just having – selecting for a nice, long, strong stem that's going to produce the most perfect bud for a showing a rose. If you're, if you're going to go to rose shows, you'll see different um, classifications of roses, hybrid teas, um, floribundas, miniatures, and and they all are treated a little differently. But floribundas, or sometimes as just called shrub roses, are probably the easiest to care for. They'll give you the most vibrant display of colors. They come in a multitude of colors. The one that's gained a lot of popularity uh, in the in recent years is iceberg, which is typically white. Is there a color that does better? It seems like. When you see a row of oleanders, or a hedget row, which is not all that common anymore, but it always seems like the white ones have bigger leaves, bigger blooms than the red ones. Is there? Well, that's that's that is the case in oleanders. White is the most vigorous of all of the colors, and it's probably that's the original, or the or the was the natural least occurring, <laughs> least hybridized. Color, so that's in in nature where that grew uh, indigenously or wild was probably a white oleander. Roses it can vary because you know just depending on again what kind of they're grafted a lot of them on a rootstock, so the vigor can be determined by the rootstock that it's grafted onto. All of the different hybridizations are have varying vigorous qualities to them, so it, you just really can't. Go by that. We used to think that the darker colored roses maybe held up better, lasted longer. Sometimes the whites and the yellows faded or got discolored more easily. Um, yeah, you know that may or may not be the case, but um, I think you just you stick with a good hardy variety that that uh, you know the nursery would recommend. You can't go wrong. The other thing that a lot of people uh, and we bred a lot of it out of roses. It's coming back now. Is is fragrance? So mm-hmm. that that becomes an important thing to consider if you want to have fragrance of the rose. Generally, when you go look at a nursery and you see the tags on the roses or on the display, it should give you the the general height that the plant's going to grow. It it probably should give you a petal count. So the the higher the petal count. The bigger and fuller the bloom is generally going to be, and it should tell you about its fragrance. Uh, and if those are vigorous varieties, then it's probably going to be a vigorous variety. Um, so there's there can be a lot of information that's good information to know on those um, tags on the rose bush, or maybe sometimes it's just one card on the display of each variety of roses. Hmm. When you said engineered it out, I, I was hoping you were going to say thorns. Do we have there thornless are some thornless? Yet? Yes, they are, have bred for some <laughs> rose varieties to be thornless. Um, some are, I think, some are okay. Some, you know, you don't see that many of them. My guess is they're they're less vigorous, um, and they have started to grow some roses on their own rootstock. I mentioned about budding or grafting onto to vigor. So, but you know, again, you're limited. If that particular variety is a very vigorous one, it might root and grow very well on its own rootstock. If it's less vigorous, um, 
then it has to be budded or drafted to to have a presentable plant. And what type of fertilizing are we doing? It's nothing we have to do right now if we're going to cut it way back, or do we need to add the fertilizer to help promote that new growth since we just chopped it all up? Well, typically, if you've been caring for and fertilizing your roses regularly, they are storing up now that they've slowed down in growth, and you're going to cut them back. There should be plenty of stored up carbohydrates and sugars and nutrients in that plant to start promoting new growth. The new growth will be signaled by day length and temperature, and as the days start getting longer and it warms up, then you'll start seeing new buds coming out and shoots and then, you know, branches and ultimately flowers. I generally advise people to wait to fertilize till they start to see, you know, new, not just buds, but actually true leaves being developed on. So once you've got some new leaves coming out, then you're probably safe to go ahead and start fertilizing. And typically with roses, we recommend about a once a month feeding using some type of fertilizer that would be apropos for blooming plants or roses. Um, You know, on a rose on a fertilizer package, excuse me, you're going to have three numbers. And that first number is nitrogen, which promotes limbs and leaves and, you know, the green part of the plant, if you want to think of it that way. The second number is phosphorus, and that's the element that's most responsible for helping a plant bloom or set fruit for fruiting plants. So a a fertilizer that was good for tomatoes might actually be very good for roses as well if you want to think of it that way. So something that's maybe a little higher on that second number, the phosphorus, um, is what you want to key in on. And a lot of them just say rose food on them when you're walking in the nursery. Typically, yeah. And, and it might be roses and flowering shrubs or roses. But, yeah, I would look for something that did say roses. Now, if you've only got one or two rose bushes and you, and you don't want to buy a 10-pound bag of fertilizer just to feed those two rose bushes, then look for something that's maybe designed for vegetables, for other flowering shrubs. Any multi-use. Any multi-use fertilizer. And even a, a balanced fertilizer is fine. It certainly is better than not feeding them at all. Now, do roses have any uh, predators or diseases that we have to watch out for? It doesn't seem like I ever remember a lot of calls here where I've got this thrips on my Roses, mm-hmm. or I've got mm-hmm. this on my roses, this disease. They seem to be pretty pretty tough. Well, the fortunate plant. thing about living in the desert is we don't have a lot of diseases, which are usually attributed to, to high moisture, high humidity, as you get warming temperatures and a lot of we – get, we get some moisture when it's cold or cool. But places like Florida and South Texas and even in the Midwest where they get a lot of summertime rain, you know, that's where you get a lot of diseases – um, there are some insects that are peculiar to roses, and, you know, aphids is probably the most common on the new growth of almost any rose bush. In the spring, you can go out there and find aphids clustered along the new growth. And they, depending on how many of them and what the population of those is, how, you know, much damage they might do. Um, thrips, you mentioned, those will keep the rose buds from opening up. Um, and then the leaf cutter bee is probably the most noticeable. It doesn't really do any damage to the plant, but you get all these little half-circle and holes in the leaves of the plant. All right. Well, that's our topic of the week. There was roses. Thank you, Mr. Harper. And we've got a lot more to cover in this broadcast. We've had a lot of rain, 
We've got a lot of weeds. We've got our summer lawns and more. It's the Outdoor Living Hour right here at Rosie on the House. I beg your pardon. I never promised you a rose garden. Back in the garden with Jay Harper. Before we move on from roses, uh, one of the things that I've keep talking about trying to get done during the week ahead of the broadcast is find locations for this hour where people can go see the trees we're talking about or gardens that were done or mm-hmm. landscape features mm-hmm. that you know we cover four roses in the phoenix metro area you know you've got the mesa rose garden at the mesa community college off of it's north of so, 60. Southern and Dobson, okay. basically. Mm-hmm. You can go do an open self-guided tour anytime, right? Yeah, it's it's out along the roadway. Yeah, it's not so, fenced off where no, you got to certain not, times. Not, not at all. Now, they'll be pruning those if they haven't started already as well. So, you Might know, be something to your, mark your calendar for for the spring to go see the color. Yeah, March or April. Uh, Valley Garden Center, 15th Avenue and Encanto, roughly. Okay. Has a pretty good rose display. The Wigwam mm. Resort in the Far West Valley has a lot of roses planted. Of course, that's historical because that's where a lot of a lot of them are gone and moved to other places now. But a lot of the old rose uh, farmers were growing commercial roses out in the Litchfield Park area in the day. There's still some out there. But so the wigwam kind of played on that, and they planted a lot of rose bushes, and I believe they're labeled as well for variety. And on the west side as well, just a drive-by viewing on the new Northern Expressway, depending on the time of year, the north side of that freeway, they still do roses, you know, underneath the Luke Air Force jetway, where an idea of how many different color varieties they grow out there. Yeah, it, 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 or that it's can grow not as pretty as it used to be because there's less of them. But mm-hmm. uh, maybe those that are in the landing pattern will stay uh, <laughs> rose gardens because there's probably not much else you can do there. But uh, you can always say your rose bush is, is uh, jet powered, jet fuel. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Fertilized by uh, exhaust. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a couple places you can go out and see good display of roses. Uh, but – Let's get to, uh, you know, we've, we're, we're growing and cultivating and curing and pruning. Let's get to killing because all this rain we've got beginning of the year, if you haven't got weeds sprouted yet, you either have a really good weed guy or you're good about doing pre-emergent or uh, or, or just wait another day or two with the sun out. They're going to they're, they're start as little tiny specks and you're going to turn around. And they're going to be an inch tall. You're going to turn around. They're going to be five inches tall. <laughs> I've seen some of that big mallow, big leaf mallow that's already a couple feet tall in places. So, uh, well, I've been. Who knows how big it's going to be by the time it, it starts to die when it gets hot? I've been growing mine, just waiting to, for it to get big enough to turn the cattle out on it for a couple of days. Okay. It's broadleaf. Probably... I'm seeing broadleaf all over my rock landscape. Oh, it's yeah, just popping up everywhere. They're just you can look if you look at the right angle at a lot of vacant lots and a lot of rock yards. You just see the right angle. You just see this little mist of green, <laughs> exactly. little carpet coming <laughs> coming up. And in about a week or ten days, it's gonna. There won't be any mist. It'll be a carpet or or a lawn of green. In a lot of places, you don't want to have a lawn. And the best time, 
So the best time to control the weeds, if you've got weeds that are coming on, if you didn't use pre-emergent, and I would encourage you to, once you get everything cleaned up, to hit it again with pre-emergent. Um, but the smaller weeds are, if you don't have cattle to turn out on them <laughs> to eat them, the smaller they are, the easier they are to either spray and, and eradicate or use a, a good old you know elbow grease and a hula hoe or a hoe or get down on your hands and knees and pull them. Um, you know they're, they're much easier when the soil is moist and they're young than if you let them get big and woody and you know they become harder and harder to kill and get rid of. And then if you do kill them, then you got a bunch of big dead stuff mm-hmm. there that you, that becomes a fire hazard or is just big and ugly that you've got to deal with. My 30-gallon gallon weeds tank, sprayer tank that you can tow behind a quad, it had broke this last fall. So I missed a couple cycles where I used to be able to get out, put 5 to 10 gallons in it and do three acres. And mm-hmm. just because all I'm hitting is just the little green heads. Just Did it a couple weeks ago. 30 gallons didn't even do a half of an acre. Because there's so much to spray. Because there's so much yeah. to spray, so yeah. it it really makes a big difference being able to stay on top of it. Just how little product you need if you get it early. Much little product, and and the plant is much more tender. It hasn't developed you know any hardened off old foliage. It's just a lot easier. It's, it's growing fast. It absorbs that chemical quicker. It doesn't take as much of it, which is important not to be putting any more out there than you have to. Um, Which is my application. It's not one where you know a commercial guy might spray the whole ground, and yeah. he's got the dye. Another so another trick is to use the dye. You just mentioned that is, then you can see that you actually only sprayed it where you wanted to spray it, mm-hmm. for sure. And another trick is you can actually, if you buy the right combination, you can apply pre-emergent with your post-emergent and kind of kill two birds with one stone or two weeds with one stone. And if you're doing it in a liquid application right now with the ground as wet as it is, I'm assuming you're not going to have to go back and water that pre-emergent in. Well, you know, it, it depends on how wet it is, but you, you might still want to do that, but you certainly want to wait till your weeds have died to do, you know, a couple of days to do that or you'd be washing everything off. Well, if you're in an HOA, get on it now before you start getting all those nice little friendly notices. Well, even, from- the city, <laughs> even the cities, though, the code right? enforcement people will be after you. If you're just joining the broadcast, we've got Jay Harper in here as we do the third Saturday of the month here in the Outdoor Living Hour. We've covered uh, weeds and we covered roses, and I don't like to go backwards, but I did forget something uh, as it relates to roses and the coming of Valentine's Day. One of the things we've done for a lot of years is give away the Forever Rose. It's a real rose that they dip into a preservative that has gold lacing on it now you can get it completely dipped in gold i'm not a big fan of that i like the ones where it's dipped in a clear preservative and then they just lace the gold around the edges of the flower on Mm. the stem the edges of the petal so you still get the green of the stem and the red from the rose and you can get you know a lot of different colors of roses dipped gotcha if you go to rosieonthehouse.com in the e-store and click on the forever rose 
it'll take you to their website. But you've got to get the promo code and the direct link off of our e-store because it's not one we keep in stock. They just do a drop ship for us. Uh, but it's v- Rosie V Day. Rosie, R-O-S-I-E, V Day. And that will get you $10 off uh, your order between now and February 3rd. They figure that's going to be the drop-dead date for delivery to get that to you in time for Valentine's Day. So if you're looking for a gift, yeah, it's a great feature. It, it, it's really, really pretty. I give my wife one every year um, for Christmas. And we've got cool. a do- we're have got we up to a dozen now. Mm-hmm. And uh, i got to start a new a new cluster of a dozen. Our, our base doesn't hold any more than that, but it's a it's hey. a real pretty display. And like nice. I said, it lasts forever. It's a yeah. forever rose. So, with that said, uh, let's get on to the topic of lawns. We've got roses trimmed. We've got our weeds killed. How about our winter lawns? Of course, the, the healthier and more vigor, uh, most vigorous winter lawn is the best way to control weeds because weeds just won't be able to. Weeds are opportunistic. So, you know, if there's a place to grow, they'll grow. If there's not, because you have good coverage and your lawn is nice and thick and healthy, you typically won't have very many, if any, weeds. So that's, you know, to be proactive, the number one way to prevent weeds is to have, if you have a lawn, if you have a grass lawn, is to have a good one. Um, if you So if you have a winter lawn and it's growing, you should be continuing to fertilize that, you know, every four to six weeks. Um and keep it as healthy as possible because that will um, certainly help you ward off any invasion of weeds. As far as lawn care this winter has been pretty easy. You probably shouldn't have had to water. <laughs> Haven't at had all, to do a lot of water. That's right. So, and, and there's nothing really almost more nutritious for a lawn than than rainwater. So, um, lawns should be nice and green. And if not, get some fertilizer on them. And if you haven't, continue to fertilize them for a few more months so that we can keep the weeds certainly at bay on those. I don't keep nearly the square footage of lawn I used to. Um, but when we had the big one in the backyard, that it costs it costs extra. Uh, but in every picture we have, we've never had greener, healthier lawns than we were using that premium lawn food from Bonide. But, I mean, it... You you had to it, – it, it, there's definitely a, a price difference. Mm. But like I said, when you look back at our pictures of the years and growing up, you could see where that money went. It was, yeah. it was so well lawn worth foods, the extra. Lawn foods come in a lot of shapes, sizes, and colors, right? So there's – you know, you can, you can buy – you can – again, you can use just about anything on a lawn. It's got – nitrogen is what you really mainly need because you're – again, you're just growing stems and leaves and that's what – Nitrogen is is for promoting, um, but the higher that number n, the first number nitrogen is, you know, the less of it you have to use to to cover a certain amount of square footage. So if you're buying a bargain fertilizer, it probably is a low n, and you're going to take it's going to take more of it. Or if you don't use more of it, you're not going to get as nice a looking green or as vigorous a lawn. So you still end up getting what you pay for. If you buy a good high-quality fertilizer, you don't need to use as much of it or maybe do it as often depending on the makeup of the nitrogen. Is it slow release? Is it fast release? Is it a combination of the two? 
Then if you go to oh, the organic side and use you know, an organic fertilizer like a pelletized chicken manure or something like that, they are very slow releasing and will last you a long time as well as building up your soil and helping enhance the quality of your soil. So, again, it just depends on how how fast you need it to get green. You know, some if you wait too long, you know, then you need a good shot of high, fast-release nitrogen to get it greened up quickly. If you're just maintaining it and you're doing a good job, a good either an organic or a synthetic slow-release nitrogen uh, will do the job very nicely for you just to maintain it. And a lot of city and municipalities send out notices, save water, don't put in your winter lawn. Your, I think your point, though, is that if you're going to have a lawn, this is the time of year to have one because you can enjoy it, whereas your Bermuda lawn in the summer, who's ever out there on it? Maybe That's maybe once for a slip and slide at the 4th of July. The only guy out there on it is the guy having to mow it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he's cussing. Um yeah, I, 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 I think we have it backwards. And you get a winter like this winter, it's not, cause, it's not using any water. And, you know, I mean, some people are still watering because they don't pay attention. But literally for w- weeks or months, some winters, you don't have to water your lawn. Um, so it uses no surface water or groundwater uh, for that matter. So... I don't know. I mean, you know, the whole concept of xeriscaping is supposed to be landscaping towards the, your lifestyle. And most of our lifestyles are to be outdoors more when it's cooler than when it's hotter. So why not have a lawn when you're going to be able to enjoy it and then not have a lawn? I mean, if you really wanted to, you could take your, your summer lawn and paint it green. Yeah. You know, I mean, or put just put mulch down or there's a lot of ways around it. Or just don't care. I mean, it's, the, it's really a little bit of the curse of having a year-round season here. You know, in the in the most places, you know, it's covered with snow, <laughs> so they don't even know what's under there. We don't have that benefit, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. I wouldn't look at a foot of snow as a benefit necessarily, um, but we have. Not so we have it melts off and fills up the reservoirs. So we have this lawn out there that's dormant or brown, which is fine. Um, in the wintertime, if you're willing to let them look that way in the wintertime, why aren't you willing to let them look like that? And it's less of the year, really. It's, you know, May to September as as opposed to the winter lawn is, is greener year-round. So I, I don't know. That's just my – that's certainly my opinion. I haven't done any studies on water usage on that. But certainly to get a winter lawn started in October, it takes a fair amount of water for a couple of weeks to get that seed to germinate and get it going. But once it's going, in, in a lot of years, and this has been a very classic one, you haven't hardly had to water at all. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our, you know, came up from last year. We still overseeded, but it was funny. Some of it will. Because we didn't, we didn't really do much with our summer lawn either. Um, it, in the areas where it's shaded and around the trees, right. it, <clears throat> it started coming up on its own. Yeah. In the shady areas, the the, the good perennial ryegrasses will come back typically. Or some, depending on the summer, maybe never die out completely. But, uh, you know, so it's, it's a philosophical issue that probably needs some more study to determine what the usage really is. And then you have to 
also then we talked about code enforcement people. You gotta you gotta educate them that no, we're just not having a summer lawn this summer. You know why are you even out working? <laughs> and a lot of people you can speak for experience on this, especially in your front lawn, is it's all artificial turf now. More and more people going to their public lawn or front lawn with artificial turf or no turf at all, zero escape with uh, gravel or rock ground cover. Uh, in the lawn that you'd never use for anything other than your your neighbors either get to enjoy it or curse you if it doesn't look good. So, um, yeah, I, I think we have to really pay attention in this day and age with so many people. And we just got news the other day that some of the West Valley new subdivision areas are going to be challenged for water deliveries. Um, I heard about Rio Verde and Scottsdale, Scottsdale cutting them off. Yeah, well, this is – yeah, I, that too, but – uh, some of the new developments that are way are you, west of town. Like uh, Douglas Ranch on the west side of correct, the White Tanks? Correct. Yeah, and they're not meeting the 100-year requirement correct. to supply water. Right. Mm-hmm. So they've got, to, they've got to turn to other means of getting water. So if we're having to start – if we're starting to do that, that ought to send a lot of red flags up as, you know, you know now you're going to get the people who say, well, why should I cut back so they can have – you know, have, these new people can have – well, you know, I mean – Yeah, that's that- – uh, that's going to make me start moving, using more water. If that means less people are are moving to the West Valley, <laughs> there's an unintended consequence right there, huh? <laughs> you gave me a brand new idea. Yeah, I just I just going to completely go home and reverse my whole watering so scheme. So, so writing that down. What, what? So we should sin more so that grace can abound even more, huh? There you go. <laughs> I had not heard uh, – I know they broke ground on parts of the Douglas Ranch, and it's changed now. They they changed the name um, of of that division. I can't remember it, but yeah, – uh, Yeah, it's got a whole new – it's a whole new city, I think, even named. 400,000 people, if I remember right, is what they're designing this for. The yeah. self-contained work, schools, uh, multiple different housing divisions – well, you know, us that have been here a long time have a hard time envisioning that. But imagine what our grandparents thought when they first moved here. They would have never envisioned, you know, places like Queen Creek and Santan Valley and, you know, Buckeye and Arrowhead. You know, I mean, all the development that we have everywhere else. So it's all relative, I guess. And all of that development out west, I found out that I-11 plays a part in this, too, the proposed interstate to Las Vegas. So. They think that the interstate will go close to there, therefore forming another part of Phoenix, I guess. Yeah, if we can even call it Phoenix anymore. So where does, Good you know, point. Where does that really end? <laughs> like, you know, people that used to say you could deliver valley-wide, you can't deliver valley-wide. Anyway, it's pretty tough for anybody I, to have valley-wide delivery well, anymore. Why would you want to? <laughs> well, back when the valley you – know, back when you could. Right. I mean, you know, from, from Glendale to Mesa was not a big deal. But now from, you know – Surprise to Santan Valley is maybe a two-hour trip. So you know, if if our grandparents probably didn't envision that, we're having going to have a hard time envisioning like Douglas Ranch or you know Tonopah or places like that being developed. And it's pretty flat between here and Tucson. I know there's a lot of farmland, but as you've seen, they don't have any problem plowing farmland over to put houses up. No, you don't. You have big, you know, maybe the biggest obstacle there is probably the Indian reservation that's kind of right in the middle of all of that. But that that isn't stopping certain types of development 
along the 101. So yeah, on, on Indian land. So the changing face of Arizona. So we we'll come back and talk something more simple like uh, yeah, fruit tree plants. Let's do, please. Down to our final segment here with Jay Harper of the Farm's Choice, and we've been talking a lot of different things, roses, weeds, lawns, water, uh, water big picture concepts. Let's hit uh, hit fruit trees. We covered a little bit last week. Uh, you can go get them out at the if you're in the Southeast Valley, the new Queen Creek Desert Botanical Gardens uh, has a fruit tree program you can go through, Greg Peterson's fruit tree program. Uh, kind of Central Phoenix will be up and operating next week. And it's for these varieties, this is our window to plant it. These, they were getting deciduous, bare root trees. If you're going to plant bare root, it's certainly your, it's a very short window. Um, as, as well as, you know, most, if not all, your nurseries and garden centers would have, you know, be well stocked right now with deciduous fruit trees. But yeah, and and a lot of places have gone away from bare root because the window is so narrow and short um, to plant them. If you're not familiar with bare root, when the when a tree goes deciduous, it's completely dormant; it has no leaves on it, so it can be literally dug out of the ground without having a root ball. You, you know, with roots and soil, there's it. no soil around the mass of roots because it's not. You know, it's not transpiring. It's not conducting photosynthesis. There's no leaves on the tree. So they prune the tops back and they go in and harvest it with a big blade and they just cut them out of the ground. But you have to get them planted while they're still in their dormant stage or deciduous stage. Once they start to leaf out and grow, then the roots are are, are starting to grow as well. And, you know, it puts a lot of stress on them. They either have to be potted up or get in the ground. So a number of nurseries anymore just go straight to pots, and then you can buy them potted. Nevertheless, it's still the best time to plant those types of trees because the stress is so much less on them being planted in the wintertime because there's no leaves on them. The main thing with fruit trees here is finding something that's low chill requiring. What do we mean by chill? That's the cumulative hours that the temperature is below 45 degrees. So depending on the winter week and depending on where you live in the, of the valley can be completely different if you're downtown where it may not cool off as much at night as opposed to if you're in Queen Creek or Santan or way out in, you know, where you live in Whitman or Surprise or something like that. It's going to get a lot cooler. We generally used to recommend two to 400 hours of winter chill really about where you wanted to be. So if you live further out, you may be able to go closer to five or 600 hours. There's a lot of good varieties that have low chill requirements. You really want to pay attention. If it doesn't say how many hours it requires, then either look it up, research it, or don't buy it. There's nothing more frustrating than getting something that you're excited about plant-wise and production-wise and never getting anything from it. No, absolutely. You spend a lot of time, money, effort, water, uh, and, and 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 you're patiently waiting for the whole reason. We used to say, "Have your shade and eat it too," right? So you want to. That's the reason you're planting this tree. Is you know the the secondary benefit is you get some shade and some beauty out of the blooms in the spring, that sort of thing. But you're planting it to 
to harvest a crop. The other thing you want to watch on some varieties are probably not as many of them anymore, but some of them do require a pollinator. should say self-fertile or self-pollinating on the label. Or if it requires a pollinator and you have plenty of room, you may want to plant, you know, two different plums that, that need each other to, to produce. So another little tip, depending on how much room you have, if you're going to plant more than one peach tree, plant one that don't ripen at the same time. If it has, you know, a, a mid-June ripening date, maybe try and find one that has a mid-May ripening date or an early June ripening date. may not be the same variety, obviously. Well, it won't but... be the same variety. It'll have to be a different variety, but you have then a longer period to harvest your fruit. And the maybe the one biggest disadvantage of summer fruit or deciduous fruit trees is they basically all ripen at the same time. It's not like citrus that you can just go out there, leave it on the tree, pick it as you need it, and it actually stores better on the tree than it does once you pick it. You know, once once the the red alert goes out to all the birds that the peaches are ripe, they're ripe. You better get them picked. You got a couple yeah. hours at that point to, <laughs> to do your harvest. Right. That is one thing I, I enjoy about the citrus is just how long it'll stay good on the tree. and Oh, it's fabulous. How yeah. long a tree will provide fruit for you. Mm-hmm. And um, apples, they, you don't have quite that long, but it, it's not quite as bad as peaches Little, right. on your, on Certainly your longer. window. Yeah. It's tougher skin, thicker skin, not soft fleshed like a peach or an apricot or a plum. One other little trick, full of tricks today, if you have very little space and you want more than one variety, you can plant what we used to call three trees or four trees in a hole. So you dig an extra generous-sized hole, and, and they've got to be things that look good growing together. So maybe you grow two, two or three different varieties of peaches and you plant them together in the same hole or a couple of different varieties of plums in the same hole. Uh, you know, So things that go well together that are just going to look good as a single, because the canopy eventually is going to be one big canopy and you can have multiple trunks. So take that into account. But that is a way to squeeze some different varieties in in a very small spaced yard. And we found that that works a lot better than what they used to call a cocktail tree where they would take one rootstock and try and put three different varieties Absolutely. on. Absolutely. One variety always outperformed the other two. Correct. So if you plant them as individual Or if you trees, have that one limb dies, then you're done. You don't have that variety mm, anymore. There you go. Yeah. All right, Jay Harper, the Farm's Choice. Thanks for spending your Saturday morning with us. Always a pleasure.